Welcome to Under My Roof, an Orthodox Christian podcast in which we explore questions of importance to life in the modern world. I am your host, Father Jacob Seaman, Rector of St. Theodore and St. Tyler's Orthodox Church in Cardiff, Wales, and Chaplain to Orthodox Christians at Cardiff University. My jurisdiction is the Archdiocese of Russian Orthodox Churches in Western Europe, based in Paris, and I serve under Metropolitan Jean of Dubnac. It is a joy to discuss matters of faith and theology, and I hope that you will join me in these discussions both now and for future episodes. But for now, let's drop in on today's episode of Under My Roof. Hello and welcome to Under My Roof. I have the delight and pleasure to be talking today with Father Deacon Timothy Kelleher. He is an Orthodox deacon um, with the uh, Ukrainian Church in the United States, um, and uh, but he lives in Canada. So he's got a very interesting background. He and I have some common experience, which is, I think, what drew us together initially. But today I will be uh, talking with him about matters um, concerning art, especially his own art, which is primarily uh, on stage and screen, uh, as well as about writing and how these things uh, correspond with the Orthodox Christian faith. So welcome, Father. Um, it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you. I'm still uh, not sure why I'm here. I mean, considering who you've had on in the past, I feel like this is like, what am I doing here? Which one of these is not fit in this uh, sentence? It's maybe maybe it's a uh, what do they call that uh, imposter syndrome, but I think it, I think you have to have a certain level of success subjectively to, to have imposter syndrome. So I don't know what this is. Well, um, you know the fact is I think uh, of of all the people that uh, I've had the chance to speak to, and I imagine your your um, circumstances are similar. That is, there are so many people you meet that other people may not know of at this stage. But I think who have something important to say, and um, my hope is that both in in this particular episode, but also in other episodes, that um, some of the work that's going on in the church can be highlighted, and the the, the ways in which we approach that, uh, because I think you know people are not necessarily aware if their paradigm is primarily uh, focused on the local parish of the kinds of things uh, that go on across the Christian world, and particularly on the part of of her ministers so um let's uh let's uh, follow that one up and and uh, i think it will emerge both for you and for any listeners or viewers uh why it is your why it is you're here so right um in that respect can you just tell me a bit about yourself i'm interested in knowing a bit about your background where you're from your faith background your professional life how you came to be orthodox i know that's a lot but if you want to just start to talking and see where that goes the answer is yes okay. no. Um, so, I mean, to, you know, let's start at the beginning. I was born in the Bronx, New York, and I actually grew up in all five boroughs, which is, I only know one other person who can make that claim. I'm sure there are others, but uh, I haven't met them yet. So <clears throat> I went to college at uh, Villanova University. I played football in high school. I decided not to play in college. I wanted to, you know, settle in. And I was, at this point, I was already beginning to think about, uh, you know, priesthood and that, <clears throat> that sort of thing. So I made a switch in my my focus and i focused on academics and then um let's see um i went to new york um and studied at a, a couple of different professional studios as an actor 
and I wasn't really quite sure why I was going to do this. I mean, I, I had actually started out after college. I went to the Jesuit novitiate in uh, Wernersville, Pennsylvania, for the Maryland province. And I, 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 it, was, it was one of the best experiences I've ever had. I mean, it sort of radicalized me um, in terms of what the church was thinking and also what the church was doing in places like North Philadelphia, which at that time was, and maybe still is, one of the worst uh, inner cities in, in, on the East Coast. Um, working with, you know, like the, uh, from Central Casting, the, the original street priest of a man named John McNamee, who was just, uh, I mean, to this day, things that he said, and images I have of him, um, inspire me. Uh, he was the real deal. And <clears throat> so, um, but I felt like there, there was still something, I wasn't ready to make the, to take the, fi the, the final vows. So I left um, with the intention of coming back, frankly, and I was encouraged to do that by all the Jesuit superiors. And I thought about, well, what am I gonna do next? I mean, I, I, I had just tried the, the most serious thing I could think of doing in my life. Um, I thought I'd tried the most ridiculous thing, which was, I had taken one course at Villanova in theater, and I really, really enjoyed it. It was, um, it wasn't a straight acting class. It was more uh, theory games and writing and improv, improv, that kind of thing. But the woman who taught it was, um, she had acted on Broadway. She had studied with the great teachers in New York. And I, when I came out, I, I called and I said, listen, Irene, you, you, you've seen what I can, sort of what I can do. You have a, a good sense of these things. Do you think I have any business going to New York? Or should I go to DC or find some small acting school in Philly. <clears throat> and she said, no, go right to New York and I'll give you the names of three acting teachers you can contact. So to make a long story somewhat uh, somewhat shorter, I went to a couple of them and I said to myself, this is what learning how to act is. I don't, you know, I'm just gonna go out and audition because it was a lot of self-indulgent, you know, crying and being the pillow and screaming at daddy, the imaginary daddy and stuff. Um, and then, uh, I, met, I ran into a woman who had been like the, what they call the key student at one of these studios, and which means she was a scholarship and very talented. And I said, hey, how, how are things, you know, sitting with so-and-so? And she said, I'm, I'm not there anymore. I said, really? You were like the star pupil? She said, no, I, I, I was done with that. I found this new guy, and he's amazing. He's like another acting teacher guru. She said, look, here's his number. You can call him if you want. If you don't, I don't care. Called him, long story, three-year program extremely um, uh, intense, real craftsmanship, um, and a real classical uh, emphasis on on creating a role. And, and, and again and again, he would emphasize, you're, you're supposed to meet the, the demands of what the playwright wrote, not your own. You don't impose your own little personality on it. When you do Shakespeare, you extend yourself, you know, and you do that within your temperamental range. Um, and he had us, I mean, seeing things, concerts, uh, classical music, going to museums, going to ballet. It was like a master's degree and it was a private studio. Anyway, it was an, a remarkable experience. I, I should say I've been really blessed with some tremendous teachers all the way from first grade to, to the present. <clears throat> and he was certainly one of them. Um, so after that, I left there and with a couple of friends, we began a, a theater, theater company in New York City. And within four years we had we had our own theater on the upper west side of manhattan people may not know the significance of that but that's a big deal and it was a beautiful uh, theater and um we had the help of uh, the 
parish priest there, a wonderful guy. Um, we had Broadway seats in our theater. We had professional lighting. We had, and we all we did it all on a shoestring. I mean, it was incredible. We would turn nickels into uh, you know fifty dollar bills. Um, and I was the artistic director, and I was at that point I was um, looking for material. You know, and some you know, some of that you can get, and you have to pay for it. Um, we were lucky enough to hook up with the Circle in the Square uh, Theater. Um, and finally, I, I began writing stuff myself. And people really responded to it. And I was like, wow, I actually enjoy writing and directing probably more than acting, although acting was still fun. Um, and so, but, you know, at the same time, you're doing this for free. And I was going broker and broker. And my agent at the time said, um, you, you're going to have to come out to, uh, to Los Angeles if you want to earn any money as an actor. So with great reluctance, I went out there for an initial three weeks and I got hired twice. And I was like, this is easy. <laughs> I'll, I'll get the Oscars by this time next year. Um, and then I would go you know, back and forth for longer and longer periods to L.A. until I was living there half the year. So I would spend half the year. Um, during pilot season and in the fall. And then I go back during the summer and the winter to New York and do the theater thing. Um, and I began to work steadily. I mean, that's a, it's an incredible blessing because you know, there are a lot of people out there who are talented and work hard and just don't get the breaks. So, <clears throat> but you know, the, the vocation thing had continued to gnaw at me. And um, I, I knew that was never gonna go away. So. It, Finally, at one point, I um, I was actually working on a film in um, in Chicago called The Negotiator. We were there for like five or six weeks, and it was that that time that I read uh, uh, Callistos Ware's um, The Orthodox Church. And people who are listening to this will go, "Oh, you too." Yep. Um, and I <laughs> and uh, I was just I was just taken by it. I mean. Um, People who had known me early on in the seminary world had uh, had predicted this was going to happen. Uh, just my temperament and my the, the things I was really interested in, I guess you'd call it the spiritual, intellectual thirst, really ran along Eastern lines. So when I got back, the very next day, it was a Sunday, and I went to the Yellow Pages and I found the nearest Orthodox church. It was an Antiochian church um, downtown, well, not quite downtown. <clears throat> and I went there and... Um, to be honest, I, I would uh, sit there week after week, sort of in judgment going, why these people are doing it wrong. I mean, why are they still facing away from us? I mean, we got past that in the sixties, you know? And although the chanting was beautiful, the people were incredibly warm and genuine. And then there was one day and I, it sounds dramatic, but it really did feel like the scales began to fall from my eyes. I just saw literally as the, as the, the Royal doors open, I was like, my whole vision of what was taking place there open. I was like, this is, there's no going back. You know, there's no going back from this. This is just incredible. Um, and so I was, I was going there and um, continuing to read as much as I could. I was really just hungry for it. Um, and I was in the bookshop one day at the cathedral there and I overheard someone say to someone else, um, do you have anything by Sophia Press? Or Saint Sophia Press, and I and they said, um, I don't know, well, what is that? He said, it's the Catholic version of us. And I was like, 
I mean, I've been to 16 years of Catholic school. I never heard this. Sure enough, I went home and looked things up, and there was a Melkite church in the valley. <clears throat> I went there. It was kind of far. And then, I, lo and behold, I find this Ukrainian Greek Catholic church in the next zip code, basically. And uh, I started going there. Not quite as warm of <laughs> a welcome as we get from the Arabs uh, uh, at the Antiochian church. But, um, yeah, and... All, the, all this is running parallel to the to the growing sense of vocation. And by that point, I had really decided that I, I needed to make a move and, and try seminary. So um, at that time, I was thinking, I'd love to go to Rome to study, you know, maybe go to the Orientale after I get a master's. Um, but at that time, my mom was, her health was beginning to decline and she was living right outside of DC. So lo and behold, another, it seemed to me providential when I found out that the the seminary for the uh, Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church was a Catholic university in Washington. So long story short, um, I went there, met with them. They recommended I go meet the uh, Metropolitan, did. And that was probably in May. By August, I was in the seminary. I left LA, packed everything up, and never, I mean, I, I did eventually go back um, uh, for a couple of jobs. But in my heart, I never looked back. Every single day I would sit in graduate theology and philosophy. I'd look up and I'd say, I'd pinch myself and say, thank you, Lord. I mean, I can't, I, I was like a kid in the proverbial candy shop. Mm. I could not get enough. I was taking PhD seminars that, that they'd allow me to sit in and uh, Monsignor Sokolowski and phenomenology. It was just mind blowing. Just as a and quick I, one, what, what year was this? This was 05. Okay. Yeah. And it was a very sharp change in, in mm. culture and, you know, orientation. And I remember the first week I was there, I was like, what am I, what am I doing? I, I, I must be out of my mind. Mm. And by, I remember that November 5th, because I, I remember being on a train writing into my journal, I was home. Mm. And I was friends with these guys from a different part of the world, different culture, different language. And uh, they were my brothers. And most of them, my little brothers, you know, and, uh, you know, you get to meet people like Robert Taft on a regular basis and Sister Vasa on a regular basis. It was just an incredible experience. Um, and, um, well, I don't, I don't want to get into too many uh, of the dark details of what happened, but um, I had been called to ordination along with the two other fellows and um, about a a little less than a month before the whole thing was scrubbed and uh it was a devastating experience and uh, to this day i still don't know exactly <clears throat> why it happened i have some suspicions i can assure you that uh it was not anything untoward on the part of myself or the other fellow he's now a priest um and doing wonderful work um and so I, that was a very painful very painful experience to see well, I'll leave it at that, because um, there things happened there that were just not right, and it was a very bitter experience. I was I had friends that said you have all these connections, magazines, and newspapers, and TV shows. Why don't you expose this? And I was like, I mean, I was tempted, but the point, and my point to myself was, you know, I know how this works. If I were to do that, it might make me feel good for a second. But the people that's going to hurt are the people in the pews because they don't, you know, and that I said, I'll leave it to God to sort this out. And 
Um, I began to listen to uh, Ancient Faith Radio and began to listen to this one character named Father Anthony Perkins and became very fond of what he was doing and, and the, the probity with which he spoke and, and his ability to connect with real things and real people's lives and, and still uh, be obviously truly devout and, and he loved the church. So one day, I, after putting it off, putting it off, putting it off, I said, I'm just, I have to call this man. And if they say no, and that's it. I'll take my ball and go home. Okay. I called him. He said, come on up. Come on. He was in Allentown, Pennsylvania, parish there. I went up and met him. And I, stood, I walked in going, he's going to say, thanks. Thanks so much. But you're, you're a little too long of the tooth for us, you know? No, the opposite. He said, I'm so excited about this. I want, I, I want to get behind this. And there I was. That's wonderful. Um, a couple of uh, responses I will offer is, uh, well, it begins with uh, Callistos Ware's book that you mentioned. I think so many viewers and listeners <laughs> will uh, find that a rather resonant experience. Uh, I think I can name the date that I first came across that book and uh, yeah. reading it. Um, but I think it's important for people to hear in all that you've said that there was sort of an Eastern uh spiritual intellectual impulse in you quite early on that it is it, it that it's not something that simply uh emerged from an emotional encounter say with with uh, metropolitan callistus's book or anything yeah like that. yeah um, nor with the liturgy itself which a lot mm. of people just go i saw it once and i was hooked mm. I, I struggled i, I white knuckled in that, that pew for weeks until right. i finally went wow this is this is extraordinary so it was kind of the theology that kind of led me to the reality of the the what was going on um like almost like training wheels and and then that I, I caught on to the fact that that's where theology comes from it's you know it begins at the altar returns to the altar and hopefully you pick up a lot of people along the way and join you in that so as a person from the west who, who was really um alien to all that when you finally begin to see what this eastern tradition has to offer to the west i mean in my view, Christianity is on its last legs in the West. Um, that's not a revolutionary insight. Uh, so the East, in a, in a sense, is the last good hope of real, and, and it is the ancient tradition. And there is so much, it's a treasure house of things that people in the West just haven't seen. But we're doing a pretty good job of sitting on that treasure chest. Well, that brings us to, um something of importance i know to both of us the whole idea of mission but in order to get there i think we'll take a bit of a um a winding road because i'm interested uh in particular in what here i'll call the literary arts i think i used that term at the very beginning of our conversation <clears throat> but i know that you're married to a celebrated uh, novelist and writer billy livingston that you yourself are a writer as you've already mentioned um, but also that people watching this podcast may recognize you from any number of television shows over the years, uh, not least of which is uh, the recent Netflix show, The Night Agent. A little plug, but I've seen it and um, can highly recommend it. Uh, but it's this aspect of your life that I'd like to know a little bit more about, as particularly as it relates to your faith. And that is to to ask, is there a relationship between your Christianity and your art yes the, in fact, most emphatically there is and i didn't quite know what it was until 
again, it was a kind of a a seminal moment. Um, <clears throat> I I was um, I had taken a trip to see a good friend of mine. I was going to Mexico on the Greyhound bus from New York City. Very very Kerouacian uh, of me, and uh, a good friend of mine was living in Berea, Kentucky. He had been in the uh, Jesuits with me. Really good guy. Um, wound up spending his career at Yale. He, um, I got there and he said, I want, you, I want to take you to see a movie. And I said, what? And he said, it's a movie called Raging Bull. Mm. I was like, you mean the Scorsese thing? He says, yeah. I said, no, no. He said, what do you mean no? I said, listen, I grew up around people like that all my life. I don't like that kind of stuff. I don't, I'm fed up with it. Uh, you can keep it. But thanks anyway. He said, do you trust me? I said, yeah. He goes, just come to the movie. Go to the movie. I'm kind of blown away by it. If you've seen it, you may remember at the end, the screen goes dark. Before the credits come up, there's a the quotation from John, where the blind man is healed. And they say to him, who healed you? He said, I don't know who it was. All I know is I was blind, and now I can see. It was like a silver bullet going through my head. I was like, you could do this? Mm. And that's just scratching the surface. And I said to myself, boom, parables, Jesus taught through parables and miracles, you know, and, and his behavior. But parables were the main instrument of formal teaching. Why did it take me so long to get that, to put those together? I think it was, you know, God working through all of that. And so I began to say, well, this is what I want to do. I want to write things that are not preachy, but I want them to be imbued with what I actually believe and have experienced. And uh, if we could do more of that, um, I think that the culture would be better for it. And so the things that I would write for our theater, for um, the stage, and and they were really, I, I, the first thing I did, was I, I adapted um, uh, Tolstoy's Father Sergei. Mm -hmm. It's a, I think it was the last thing he wrote. It's a short novel. And it's a, a we staged it very simply. The, the response was unbelievable. I mean, unbelievable. And it's a very, it's very, very religious, but in that <laughs> enormous Russian sense. And, um, the 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 fellow who was the chancellor for the Archdiocese of New York at the time, uh, Monsignor Peter Finn, had been a teacher of mine in high school. And I invited him because I was hoping that maybe he could help me find a bit bigger space. And sure enough, one day he shows up and he's got the town car in front. He said, I'm sorry I'm late. I had dinner with the uh, Chinese ambassador at the UN or some crazy this. Anyway, he was so taken with this. He said, this is important. This is really important. He got me um, a temporary space in a, in a church in uh, in Chelsea, and then he's the one who brokered the relationship with uh, Father Robert O'Connor on the Upper West Side, and we built this incredible theater. It's still going today. Um, so that was that was a. It was risky, you know. I I was writing it and I directed it, and then just like the day we were going to open, I said to myself. What if this is terrible? What if I, I've really misjudged people and they're gonna just go, what are you doing? But you could hear a pin drop and it was packed every night. And we got reviewed and it was like, wow, there is an appetite for this. Mm. And you know, it's not the happy, uh, cute story. It's more in the, the harsh grace of you know, Flannery O'Connor style. Mm. That's, um, I mean, I don't want to uh, sort of, over uh over emphasize the sort of emotional draw or the emotional power of theater 
and I want us to, you know, go beyond that to see even theological, spiritual links. But I, you know, just by way of, of uh, I don't know, I suppose, reinforcing what you've just said, one of my own personal transformative moments was when I was living in Montreal and uh, a priest mentor friend was leaving the parish he had been serving. He gave my wife and I um, the remaining season tickets to the Centaur Theatre, which is Montreal's English speaking theatre. And um, I went and saw a play by a Belgian playwright called uh, Eric Emmanuel Schmidt called The Stranger, in which, uh, um, well, it's all, it all takes place on the night that uh, Anna Freud is arrested by the Gestapo and uh, Freud, uh, Sigmund, is left in his study fretting about the loss of his daughter when a figure climbs through the window. And the whole question is, is this figure a madman or is it God? And and they have this, uh, this long conversation. It's a two-person play. But at one moment, I mean, pr- there is an immediacy to theater that I love. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. it's utterly unmediated, right? Yeah. So you, um, I, I love its power. And uh, at one moment, it was everything simply came together when... Um, Freud shouts at this madman God character, and and I'm supposed to believe that you're God. I don't believe in God, and the character responds by saying, "Ha, huh, hearing you say you don't believe in God is like hearing a nightingale say it doesn't believe in music." And I just remember the 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 hairs on the back of my neck standing up and the tears welling up in my eyes, mm. simply to illustrate the kind of power that theater can have. But equally, the, the the poetry, the 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 words behind it. Um, in that moment, it was suggested to me that there was, I mean, even in Freud's uh, absence of faith, was a type of faith, and it can act as something of a, you know, a portal for divine communication. Um, another analogy I would uh, draw on, or comparison or whatever is you know take Lou Reed's perfect day right I mean this is a song that could be about heroin could be about a woman could be about God and on whatever level you listen to it it makes complete sense and it's beautiful yeah and and to me you know so you know what you're saying and and in terms of um you know the your um (laughs) former teacher sort of recognizing that power I think is extremely extremely important and helpful yeah you know um right after I was ordained a deacon I was sitting with some people who were strangers to me and they they said they learned something about my background they said oh well that that must be easy for you to get up there and preach and things because you're an actor Hmm. and I was like no no it doesn't those two don't really have anything to do with each other you know in one you're writing you're you're performing a character and you're, in a sense, lying, you know, in a way. Whereas when you're up preaching, you're 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 from the heart, and it's it's you as an instrument. But there is a a larger sense in which the we're all, you know, actors in this divine play. Our teacher used to say um, um, a couple of things that um, that made a lot of sense to me. Uh, one of which was no writer ever wrote a word to be uh spoken um uh the 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 words of the signposts to the behavior now i'm a big fan of like the best of phenomenology and all the signative talk um 
even the idea of Christ himself being the sign that points to the Father, to the Trinity. Mm. Um, we are all have been written these roles. And in the same sense in which that teacher said, you don't impose your pukey little personality on Shakespeare or Moliere or whatever. You extend yourself to what the playwright has written. And if you put that in theological terms, what has God written for us? He's written these magnificent roles to become I mean, theosis, to become God-like. And we settle for so little. It was Benedict XVI who said, you know, the, the world promises you comfort and luxury. God wants you to be great. And that's the role, no matter who you are, no matter how limited your talents are, you can be, and you are called to be great. This is the play we're all cast in. That is fantastic. I think uh, were I to isolate a single quote from everything we've said so far and possibly even for the rest of the interview, that would be it. So we're going to go with that. That's wonderful. Um, you, you, you mentioned the comparison between, um, you know, preaching or undertaking that liturgical role and it not being like acting. I'm going to put, give you a bit of pushback there now. Here we go. Just say, you know, because I am interested in the idea of the church's services as being a form of divine theater, of course, with all the limits implied by a mere analogy. But right. in this case, you're a deacon. I'm a priest. We're both actors, I think, in making known a holy mystery. Is that something that you would accept? I mean, do you? Oh, do you sure. Totally. Yeah. I mean, in, insofar as an actor is an instrument. Uh, for the playwright, yeah, as clergy, we're instruments of the divine playwright. And our job is to draw people into this divine um, play, pageant, uh, procession. Um, it's uh, totally, totally legitimate. What I guess I'm, what I objected to when the woman said that to me was that I think she was implying that there's a certain artifice to being a preacher or you know you have to sort of affect something and i right i, I don't get me started but i see people doing that and you know the whole affecting thing you know and it's like it's all so stock and i go no, no no please just 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 speak from your heart you know if you have if you have the education that'll shape what you're going to say even if it sounds weird and emotional that you know trust it it's better to have Three minutes of that, then twenty minutes of some idea of who you are as uh, you know. I don't know. Thank you so much for saying that. I mean, for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, uh, you know, you, the, the danger of it being some kind of artifice is 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 I think quite real and one that I feel profoundly uncomfortable with. One of the things that I may, I believe makes us most effective as priests, broadly speaking, as ministers of, of the gospel, is um, absolute um, sincerity, you know, transparency, a sense that actually we're, we're broken servants. And if we communicate something other than that, yeah. you know, as if, you know, you know, as if we're sort of, I don't know, 1950s prelates or, you know, whatever, you know, God forbid, because it has nothing to do with actually yeah. the gospel. It has nothing to do with that role that actually we've been called yeah. to play in yeah. the uh, in the uh, in the cosmic theater or in the theater uh, of of the logos. Yeah, and you know, and to be to to be fair or compassionate, maybe 
I know that it's not easy for a lot of people who have to get up into the pulpit. I know it's very intimidating and they lacking the, the right kind of support and training. Um, um, they will, you know, grasp at straws. And if that straw happens to be, I'm going to do it like, um, you know, Jimmy Swaggart, or I'm going to do it like I'm uh, Fulton Sheen, I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. But I think to me, you know, there, you, there is some ego and nar- narcissism probably involved in some of these cases, but there's also a profound um, lack of confidence and intimidation. It's a big, it's a big responsibility. And you know, I'm sure you and most people listening to this will, will recognize it when I say, you have to go pretty far and wide. You have to really do your research to go into a church and hear a homily where you go, wow, yeah, I, I hadn't thought of that. That was real. And I, wow, I'm so glad I'm here. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. uh, you know, the vast majority of the case, and I feel for the person up there, I do. Even I if I want to strangle them. You. <laughs> Even if I want to strangle them. <laughs> I was going to ask if you had any suggestions as to, you know, um, what it might mean to be sort of actors on that divine stage in liturgical terms specifically. In a certain way, you've already answered it because of the the emphasis on sincerity and also your sympathy that you've just expressed with those who may not always get it right. But... Right. Um, is there anything else about the liturgy specifically now? And I I mean, I just came back from my cathedral in Paris where the liturgy is, I don't know, there's something about the liturgy there and Orthodox liturgy generally, although it's not always well um, presented perhaps, but there it feels as if you have stepped into heaven. We all know the cliche about um, sort of Orthodox um, liturgy being heavenly or, you know, just having an, you know, a, a tone <clears throat> that is out of this world, almost literally. Well, I find it exemplified there very, very well. We don't always achieve it well, because on a parish level, we're less resourced. There are all sorts of factors involved. But is there any way that you think we can, you know, that, that Orthodox liturgy can be approached both by those who are involved directly on the altar, those who who simply enter into it um, as participants in the mystery, anything, especially, you know, with reference to your own background in, 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 in yeah. um, the acting world. I think there are some very simple things that everybody could do, uh, priests and deacons. For one thing, like if you, when you get a play to read, you're going to perform or, you know, um, the first thing you do is you cross out all the stage directions because they're the results of somebody else's performance and that, you know. And then you begin to go through without saying anything out loud by yourself and you begin to go through the moments that you're tasked with performing. And if you go through them carefully and you find your emotional point of view and the circumstances, you begin to find the beats and the emotional moments that begin to register. And they change, but they're all within the certain um, uh, the circumstances that the playwright has written. And that's who you begin to connect to the character. You don't walk in and say, I'm going to say it this way, because then you just kill the life of it. There's no life begins to, to evolve through it. I think that if, if we were all to take um, <clears throat> the liturgy book and just very quietly as a, as a method of prayer every day, just go through, not 
necessarily the whole thing, but parts of it, and let it speak to us. Let it touch us. Because, you know, just take one, one obvious example, the anaphora prayer of John Chrysostom. Now, I, I haven't had to say that because I'm not a priest. I hope that one day I will be able to. But I can't imagine getting through that without sobbing. I mean, uh, what are we talking about here? And then most places, you people never hear it, mm. let alone. And then just in general, because the service is long, we speed through these prayers that are so incredibly profound. They just go right by you. But at least if you are alone with them, praying with them, and they move you, I can't, I, I can't believe that that won't make a big difference in what people see and what we experience as the celebrants. That's just one thing. Right. Well, that's, I mean, I can't think of anything really that could trump it, you know, in the, in the sense that I, I, I know when we approach Lent every year and I warn people that we will moving, be moving into the liturgy of St. Uh, Basil um, to please read the anaphora ahead of time, because for all, it will mean a lengthening of the liturgy. Every word is worth contemplating. It is so robust, so utterly exquisite. Um, yeah, there's nothing it's, like uh, it. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah, I mean, we are, we have been given such an incredible treasure. Mm. I mean, it's just unspeakable and it's um, infinite. Um, and in terms of preaching, you know, I think if, um, if, well, anybody who teaches preaching would have to already be living this in their own preaching, but just sit down with the person, you know, and say, or here's the text we're going to preach on this week. Um, what is it about? And then what is it about objectively, as objective as you can get with it? And what is it saying to you personally? What would you like to say about this? And just talk to me conversationally. Don't write it down or say, well, I've got to put it this way. I'm just just conversationally. Let what comes out of that be the fruit and then begin to shape it and just keep it simple and from the heart, you know? Um, and if you need to consult a concordance, if you need to talk to a, a theologian, if you need to translate a, one of the Greek words, that often helps tremendously. Um, if you can't do it yourself, ask somebody who can. And just... Uh, even that, I, I mean, I took a, 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 a homiletics course. It was good um, at the graduate level, but we didn't learn that. Right. You know, it's more about projecting. That's all, all those things are important. Um, but just to be able to connect with what the text is saying, what is God saying through that word to you? Let that be the starting point. But you have to make the time for it. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that's hard when you've got two parishes, three parishes, hospitals, and, you know, whatnot. It seems to important. me that not unlike, you know, somebody going to the opera with a ballet and re reading the uh, story notes beforehand, uh, that, that allowing them to enter more deeply into the story, that what you're saying now applies to um, laity as much to anybody who, uh, who is directly... Um, uh, involved in the work on the altar um because you know it's 
it just you know it's only sensible that all of this will will um expand the experience and yeah. and uh you know perhaps even on those sundays where the liturgy moves more quickly than is altogether helpful <laughs> um you know uh, you know like like listening to music in the 1980s on cassette tape you know when the when the quality's diminished your mind can fill in the you know the bits that yeah. you don't quite hear yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how many times you'll you'll talk to people who have been to the liturgy and you ask them about, you just think, what about the reading today? Like, you get embarrassed and you don't mean to embarrass them, but it's like, they're tuned out. Mm. You know what I mean? I, I, I couldn't really say I was there, but I can't tell you what it was. Sorry. Right. Right. You know, yeah, that's going to happen, but... Um, yeah, I mean... Protestants can be biblical fundamentalists. Uh, Catholics can be dogmatic fundamentalists. I think Orthodox or the East in general can tend to be rubrical fundamentalists. And as long as you're doing the, the action, and I know a lot of Orthodox would bristle at the mere suggestion that that's going on. From what, from what I can see, it's exactly what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and people get so bent out of shape and this bishop says, you you must go through the door this way or you must swing the uh, cadillo this way. And then the other bishop goes, never do it that way. Who told you that? Oh, well, the Metropolitan told me that. Oh, I'm telling you this. It's like, if it matters so much, we should all know the same rule, rubric, right? If, right. if it makes the difference between valid and invalid, maybe, you know, then I think we should be on the same page. So get off my back. <laughs> <laughs> I want to uh, talk now about the meeting point between Orthodox Christianity and culture. Um, I had a recent conversation with uh, the artist and iconographer Aidan Hart, um, together with Jonathan Pajot, but Aidan said something then that really intrigued me. He referred to what he called threshold art. Now, I came to realize that that's a term he's used um, significantly in the past, and we've already touched on it by by you you mentioned the Tolstoy a story that you rendered into a play I mentioned even something like uh, like Lou Reed's um, um, A Perfect Day but um, he was referring to those artistic deposits in whatever form that draw a person toward the mystery of faith and uh, so for him I think he if I remember correctly he mentioned uh, Dostoevsky as an obvious example but I want to hear from you as to what you think about this concept of the idea that art can be a stepping stone into deeper apprehension of the cosmos and so faith itself. <clears throat> You've already suggested that this is indeed the case. Are there particular works? Are there um, things that you have found helpful in terms of uh, sort of causing you to contemplate faith more deeply and that you would uh, be inclined to share with others as as ways in which they can enter into the same space yeah <clears throat> well you know it's um it's funny because i just taught a class at ubc um uh it's called um what did i call it uh, oh yeah <clears throat> matinee idols hmm. uh the good the bad the ugly uh depictions of faith in cinema um in the last class we did a um we, we watched a um a um document a short documentary on uh andre tarkovsky mm -hmm. um he wrote a book uh, i think it's called sculpting in in time he, 
you know, in my mind, that there there's great directors, and then there's Tarkovsky. And I think some of the great directors, including Ingmar Bergman, would say the same thing. But he's, I mean, of course, he did Andre Rublev, so he's got some connection to this kind of idea. And I'm writing a paper right now for an academic conference that I'm referred to what he does as streaming iconography. Now, in typical Russian <laughs> style, he pretty much distills what the purpose of art is. And he said, just to prepare us to die. Just like, okay, that's a pretty Russian thing to say. But it's also a very profound and I think true thing to say. Prepare us to learn how to die. Um, and in doing that, you learn how to live, you know. Um, and so it doesn't get much more thresholdy than that or more liminal than that. And I think that's profound in his images. I mean, it, it's just shocking. And the way he perceives art as being uh, enabling you to um, step out of the linear way we perceive life and, we're, and, and step into this realm where all time, past, present, future, converge in this one moment. Which is the way I felt when I when the the, uh, the scales began to fall. I'm sitting in front of the uh, yeah the iconostas, and I'm saying these royal doors are like, you know, the present moment. Any every single moment can open to eternity. You know, there's no past, there's no future, there's only the present, and the present is basically a, a psychological construct. But here we have this opening to the to God to the to divine reality. And I think that that's what art can and should do. Um, of course, you'd never know that, but <laughs> your typical movie theater of putting on a TV show. Um, but that's something to aspire to. I mean, that's, that's as they say, uh, muy profundo, you know? It's, uh, but that's what I think we should aspire to. And it's beautiful. Um, you know, that kind of real, sometimes terrible beauty can save the world, yes. to quote Dostoevsky, but sometimes beauty is terrible. I, I, I am um, utterly uh, in awe of what you've just said. And, and in fact, I have to revise the earlier statement I made regarding having a summary quote drawn from the middle of our conversation to, <laughs> so that I can add a second. Honestly, <laughs> I think that's, I mean, this whole idea of, of the moving icon um that you referred to is is incredible to me um one thing i suppose i would say in 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 sort of response to uh your your last uh comment regarding not that you could tell from say going to the the cinema today or or watching a television show today i do find and this is just a personal observation but perhaps it began with picket fences or northern exposure in the early 1990s but television um has gone through an incredible evolution upward you know from from being almost trite weekly installments of you know the fall guy to to being something not, not that i have anything against lee majors but, <laughs> um, but to, to becoming much more complex narratives with with utterly yeah. breathtaking acting in some cases oh. and um you know one one case in point uh, for me recently was a show on Netflix called Seven Seconds, which is about a, a young uh, black kid who is killed by um, a police duo in a park in New York by accident. But then the cover up that ensues around mm. his death 
the acting in that on the part of the two main characters is unlike anything I'd ever seen to the point where it's it's virtuosic in the same way that if, if you go to a jazz performance when a soloist gets up and utterly blows you away it's like that and I I find that in itself there's something about virtuosity um now when that virtuosity is married to good writing to you know uh, the 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 sort of the artistry of of cinematography all of it when everything comes together there may be nothing like it but certainly you know just individual um uh parts of of any any kind of show cinema or television broken down can be in fact quite quite inspiring if we have the sort of eyes to see and ears to right but uh, yeah um are there any other pieces that you would love to see on stage or on screen or that you would love to render for stage or screen um, that you think kind of serve this purpose? Oh, there, there are so many stories out there. That, I mean, there are biblical stories that I wouldn't mind taking a crack at. There were, I, I'd always thought that it would be um, great to uh, do a movie about Walter Chiswick. Mm. Um, um, I was facing out, but there, there, there are tons of uh, of stories like that. Um, I wish there was some way to to uh, make the work of uh, Father Alexander Schmemann more accessible, more more active. Um, um, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I like playing with the ideas of of creating characters that would never have known each other because they're lived in different eras, mm -hmm. uh, talking to each other. Uh, so I played around with some of those ideas. Um, it'd be great to get like, you, you name three people that from different periods of time, getting them in a room together and what would happen, you know, it'd be it, that kind of thing really fascinates me. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I like um, conventional plays, but I also like experimental stuff um, where you can make use of multimedia without you know making it distracting it's all about the bells and whistles um but i've seen some of that done really well in mostly in new york um and there was a I think it was a polish company that came to new york and they just do it incredible they did this kind of experimental theater but it wasn't uh, it wasn't like your your, your uh, lampoonable you know running around with craziness it was really deep right. um yeah, I'm 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 feeling to answer your question specifically. Um, when we finish, I'll say, "What? What about those five ideas I have in my notebook?" <laughs> well, I think that uh, we'll we'll have to carry the conversation on so we can actually touch on anything you feel you missed today. But uh, um, the idea of the kind of art of which we've spoken and mission, and this is the final question I'll put to you. It, is it an important one? Is it something that you see um, extending beyond you and your personal, um, you know, what it is you personally bring to the uh, to the mission of the church, to your own ministry? Is it something that you would like to see sort of extended sort of through, you know, through those of us involved in mission generally? Absolutely. Um, as we discussed on our previous occasion, um, I'm... I tend to tell this story about, uh, you know, the famous story of 
when they asked the famous bank robber, um, Willie Sutton, um, why do you rob banks? And he said, it's where the money is. And then I put the question, you know, if, we'll, if, if, if you were to think of young people today as money or cash, which a lot of corporations merrily do, mm. where would you find them? Well, you wouldn't find them in church, unfortunately. Where are they? They're on their cell phones, their tablets. That's where they are, headphones. They are not going to come to church. We're losing generation to generation. The more generations we lose, the harder it's going to be to connect to them. We're going to have to start from scratch, understanding that they have no form or frame of reference to anything we're talking about. Mm -hmm. They don't know the Good Samaritan from the, from, from the, you know, the good, uh, I don't know. Um, they don't know any of this stuff. We have to go and get them. We have to find them there. And so we have to create entertainment that is more than just entertainment, that is nourishing, challenging, fun, enchanting, the kind of thing that lifts you from yourself and makes you aspire to something more than the drone that they're listening to and that they're paying for and that is distracting them from genuine solitude and the opportunity to be touched by the Holy Spirit. We have to get in there. And we keep saying, we're gonna do it, we're gonna do it. John Paul II called it you know, the, the, the modern Areopagus. What are we doing? Precious little, hmm. precious little. We have to find a way in, but we're gonna, you know, we're gonna lose more and more of them. And we're robbing them of the incredible patrimony and treasure that they're meant to have and they're entitled to have. They're meant to have this. Thank you very much. I think hey. there's so much of what you've said over the last hour that uh, will um, give me cause for thought, but equally, I think, uh, can can become the seeds for future discussions. Uh, I would love to keep a conversation going with you. Yeah, let's please. Um, but let's uh, I, I have found this helpful, and I'm sure that anybody listening or watching will as well. I hope so. Hope you're a good editor. <laughs> <laughs> I do my best. Thank okay. you very much. Hey, thank you so much. All right. God bless you. You too. You've been listening to Under My Roof, an Orthodox Christian podcast with me, Father Jacob Siemens. If you have enjoyed this episode and wish to support me and my parish, please be sure to tune in regularly. Also, please visit me at coffee.com slash priestjacob and consider buying me a coffee. That's coffee.com slash priestjacob, ko-fi.com forward slash priestjacob, all one word. Thank you, and God bless you.